This is Macro Horizons, episode 227, Doubting the Dots, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 20th. And with Father's Day this weekend, we're reminded that whether it's nature or nurture, it's still Dad's fault. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had the insight from the FOMC and the fact that the Fed chose not to hike rates. The big debate quickly became whether or not the Fed has one, two, or zero additional hikes left before the end of the cycle. Using the SEP, the Fed has signaled to the market that they intend to increase rates twice at quarter-point increments between now and the end of the year. In practical terms, if nothing else, they have made it clear that July is a live meeting. The market was quick to trade off of the SEP, selling off in the very front end and inverting the 2s, 10s, and 5s, 30s curve even further. Powell's press conference, on the other hand, struck a slightly more balanced tone and suggested that while some members of the committee are skewed more hawkishly into the end of the year, the core decision makers might be less compelled to follow through with two additional rate hikes. Moreover, our primary takeaway is that the Fed has transitioned into a truly data-dependent stance. In this context, the CPI data was notable, while the headline and core figures did match the consensus expectations, when we drilled down a bit further, the data tells an interesting story. The two primary drivers were OER and used auto prices. So given that those are the two components keeping core CPI from drifting lower, as we look forward into the June and July data, Expectations are for used auto prices to be more of a drag on core inflation as opposed to a pillar. In practical terms, this implies that the July FOMC meeting is anything but a done deal as it relates to a 25 basis point rate hike. The Fed will have the June inflation data in hand as well as an updated payrolls print and unemployment rate. Returning to CPI for a moment, the core services at shelter component decelerated to two-tenths of a percent on a month-over-month basis in May, as opposed to three-tenths of a percent in April. The Fed has emphasized this subcomponent of consumer price inflation as it's highly correlated with nominal wage gains. So as we think about the framing of the setup for the July FOMC meeting, it's important to keep this context. The price action itself was consistent with a hawkish pause and on the margin, the surprised extra rate hike that was indicated via the dot plot. 
Ten-year yields remain on the upper end of their range, and this begs the question whether or not ten-year rates will see a forehandle before the summer is over. Our baseline expectation is that won't be the case, and any price action that brings ten-year yields above 390 will ultimately prove to be an attractive buying opportunity and bring in sidelined investors who might otherwise have been waiting for post-Fed clarity. It's been a pivotal week for financial markets. We received a consensus CPI read that gave way to a air quotes hawkish pause from the FOMC. And despite the dot plot not having the most stellar track record of predicting the outlook for policy, I would argue the most overt form of hawkishness came in the form of the move higher in the 2023 dot from 5.1 to 5.6. And that's precisely what the Treasury market responded to. We saw a very sharp sell-off in the front end of the curve, and while Treasury yields across the curve were dragged higher in sympathy to the monetary policy narrative, the fact of the matter was that the primary thing that mattered in the wake of the statement and the SEP was the dot plot. Now, on the other hand. Powell's press conference was decidedly more balanced, and as a result, we saw rates drift somewhat lower, particularly in the back end of the curve, as ten-year yields failed to once again trade with the forehandle. And as we were evaluating the takeaways from the information revealed in the dot plot, in the statement itself, and from Powell's press conference, we discussed what the committee's primary motivation was in delivering the message that they ultimately decided to, and that was likely increasing flexibility around future rate moves. Even Powell said it was probably inappropriate to call this meeting a skip, which implies that July is by no means going to certainly be a 25 basis point hike. And instead, what the committee was successfully able to do is push the pricing of rate cuts in 2023 even further out into next year. Before the meeting, and frankly throughout the bulk of 2023, we've been very impressed with the sustainability that investors continued to price in rate cuts at some point this year, and the fact that the formal communication this week was so decidedly skewed in favor of more hikes as opposed to the risk of a cut has now led to something of a price to perfection scenario, at least from the Fed's perspective. And hats off to monetary policymakers. The fact of the matter is that. The most reasonable way to anticipate hawkishness to be expressed going forward will be by having a longer period at terminal, regardless of whether or not the July meeting ultimately leads to another quarter point rate hike. Monetary policy is still well into restrictive territory, and every six weeks in which policy rates are not cut will be a success for the Fed. Let us not forget that during the same period, the balance sheet runoff continues, and as we know, the Fed has a significant incentive to make sure that the balance sheet continues to come down and to conform with the overall size of the real economy. And I would say this meeting, despite the higher dots, represents an inflection point in terms of the Fed's relationship with the incoming economic data. Before this week, the Fed's bias was to continue hiking, and it was up to any meaningful shifts in the economic data to derail that path. Now that we've seen the Fed pause, I would say all else equal, if the Fed is able to keep rates on hold, they would like to, and now it's going to be up to the data to motivate further tightening. Remember that 50 basis point increase in the 2023 dot is predicated on the assumption that all goes according to plan as it relates to the Fed's forecasts. Critically, that was upward revisions to the inflation figures, 
but it was also accompanied by downward revisions to the unemployment rate to 4.1% from 4.5%, which we saw in March. And that means that the committee now has the flexibility to step back from that two more hike idea in the event we start to see the data soften more materially. Not to mention what we heard from the chair in the press conference about the continued angst surrounding any credit implications from the regional banking crisis. And Ian, as you touched on with the lagged impact of not only rate hikes, but also what's going to result from the balance sheet. Clearly, waiting and evaluating is where the Fed wants to be. After all, if they really wanted to be hawkish, they would have hiked. And this begs the question, is taking one meeting off going to be sufficient to get a true sense of how these factors have impacted the real economy? Recall that we didn't see the type of tightening of credit standards in the most recent senior loan officer survey, and it does follow intuitively that such a transition would take several months, if not quarters, to actually work its way through the system. Similarly, there's an open debate insofar as the length of the lag of monetary policy hitting the real data. We've already started to see initial jobless claims printing above 260,000 for two weeks in a row, which sets up the June employment report to be an important wild card as the July meeting approaches. And also, let us not forget, expectations are for a downshift in the core CPI numbers to 0.2% month over month in June. And this could very easily contribute to a policy narrative that favors being on hold until the September FOMC meeting. And there's a lot of data and potential hurdles to another rate hike between now and September. And on Thursday specifically, we got some data that represents hurdles to more tightening. Specifically was the initial jobless claims data that, remember last week, jumped on a week-over-week basis by the most since 2021 to an outright level that's the highest since 2021. And while a single week's worth of unemployment filers would hardly be enough to really change the narrative around the jobs market, what we saw within the latest series was another 262,000 increase in initial jobless claims, which on top of last week at least softens, if not necessarily completely changes, the idea that the jobs market is unshakable. Also remember, within May's data in the household survey, we saw a decline of 310,000 jobs, which drove that unemployment rate increase to 3.7 from 3.4. So it's not bad enough to give credence to the rate cut narrative, but nor is it necessarily accelerating in a way that will ensure we're going to get two more 25 basis point hikes. Well, we've talked a lot about the deflationary narrative. Ian, what do you think the threats are to a rebound in inflation? Well, Vale, that's a fair point. We are operating under the assumption that we'll see a downshift in the pace of core inflation in June and July. So what happens in the event that that doesn't occur or that we go from four-tenths of a percent to five-tenths or even six-tenths of a percent on a month-over-month basis? To achieve those numbers, we would need to see the trend in OER not come in line with pre-pandemic norms and instead bounce off of some of the recent prints, more importantly, The variability in the auto sector has been a key driver, pun intended, to the overall inflation series. And if we saw a repeat of May's data in June and the downward pressure that all of the industry surveys seem to be suggesting is looming in used car prices fails to materialize, 
I suspect that that would be consistent with the sticky inflation argument and, as a result, extend the window for the Fed to keep policy deeply in restrictive territory and, of course, add to the probability that July is, in fact, a quarter-point hike meeting. And it's worth mentioning one thing we didn't hear during the FOMC, and that was an emphasis on that core services ex-shelter subcomponent of inflation that seems to be playing a larger role in monetary policymakers' decision-making a couple months ago. What we saw within that subcomponent in May's data was a deceleration down to two-tenths of a percent from three-tenths of a percent. And while a nuanced deceleration of a narrow subcomponent of consumer prices is not going to really make a difference in terms of consumer behavior or the overall state of the economy, if the Fed wants to look for an excuse to not hike in July or push the conversation further into September, November, or December, there is precedent and they would be able to point to some of these decelerating measures, which some are expecting could drop below zero in the coming months, along with some of the deflationary pressures we've been talking about as a way to highlight that, in their view, the measure of inflation tied most closely with wages is now dropping, and that hardly justifies the case for future rate hikes. And another thing we didn't hear about from Powell was addressing the significant outperformance of risk assets over the last several weeks, with the S&P closing in on 4400 Equity volatility has also subsided, contributing to the easing in financial conditions, and as the committee transitions to a period on hold, maintaining sufficiently restrictive financial conditions will be a crucial part of the FOMC's ability to return inflation at 2%. You're absolutely right, Vale. And while obviously most of our conversations center around the rates market, during these past few weeks, stocks have been a close number two in that regard, as we've seen the NASDAQ and the technology sector continue to drag the equity market as a whole higher and back to levels that have yielded questions such as, what can make stocks go down? If it's not the Fed forecasting two more rate hikes this year, what could do the trick? Maybe if the Fed would have forecast four more rate hikes this year, we wouldn't have seen this trajectory in the equity market. But at the end of the day, I think it's safe to assume that we're continuing to see positive performance on the equity market, in part because the market was somewhat underinvested up until this stage on the assumption that we would have seen more of a pullback by now because of how hawkish the Fed has been and is expected to be between now and the end of the year. And one of our favorite macro answers to the question of why stocks continue to rally is simply the amount of liquidity in the system. There's still a great deal of capital that needs to be deployed somewhere within the financial system. And as an important indication of this, we'd also like to flag what we've seen within the reverse repo program over the past week. We've talked a bit about the interplay between the increase in bill supply, what that means for bank reserves and the amount of cash that's sitting at the Fed at the RRP. And as bill auctions have started to grow, we've seen A, very strong demand to take down the upsized supply, and B, RRP balances start to move down off the latest peaks. Now, still over $2 trillion doesn't suggest there's going to be an evaporation of excess cash in the system anytime soon. But in terms of looking at the reaction function between the money market, front-end treasury rates, and risk assets, it's at least worth mentioning that RRP balances have begun to decline as bill auction sizes have begun to grow. And on the topic of inflation, did you guys hear that El Nino is going to be driving up the price of our coffees? Hmm. So it sounds like the cost of remaining caffeinated is about to go up. We could always try tea. Didn't we go to war over that once? I'm game for a trip to Boston. I'm down for a party. In the holiday-shortened week ahead, 
the Treasury market will have very little in terms of new fundamental information to guide trading direction. And in fact, as investors continue to digest the monetary policy updates from a variety of central banks, our expectations are for a comparatively calm week with the only supply on the horizon being the 12 billion 20-year auction on Wednesday. Given the outright level of yields, we don't anticipate a great deal of concession will be needed to take down supply, and we're reminded that auctions bring out buyers. Taking a step back, as we contemplate the balance of 2023, it certainly isn't wasted on us that the Fed has upped the ante, at least on the margin, in terms of another rate hike or two. If nothing else, what they've attempted to do is convince the market that rate cuts this year are a low probability event. To Powell's credit, the Fed Fund's futures market now reflects that reality, and all else being equal, the path of least resistance is for the Fed to avoid rate cuts until we're well into 2024. Of course, that assumes that any erosion of the labor market is measured and doesn't conform with the prior patterns of breaking out towards a higher unemployment rate when momentum shifts towards the negative side. With this backdrop, the cyclical bull steepening of the yield curve has been elusive thus far, as evidenced by the post-Fed deeper inversions of 2s, 10s, and 5s, 30s. With that backdrop, we expect that this curve will remain stubbornly inverted at least throughout the summer months until there's further clarity from the Fed. This clarity could come in the form of another skipped meeting in July, and in such an eventuality, we would look at that as a key inflection point for a more durable re-steepening of the yield curve to occur. Now, as we ponder the balance of the year, a stubborn Fed in the face of inflation that appears to be less sticky than it has in the first half of the year will provide the market with a new set of challenges. Given that our baseline expectation is for core CPI to print at 0.2% on a month-over-month -month basis in both June and July, that implies that the cumulative tightening already executed by monetary policymakers will start to flow through to the real economy and become increasingly evident in the second half of the year. That being said, the Fed certainly has an understanding of the trajectory of core prices at the moment and is still signaling a commitment not to adjust rates lower this year. That runs the risk of exaggerating the inversion or at least keeping an inverted curve as the norm for longer than we might have otherwise anticipated. Nonetheless, we continue to anticipate that by the end of the fourth quarter, the market will have shifted to a decidedly bond bullish tone led by refined monetary policy expectations and an outperformance of the front end of the curve, which then will translate into a steady uninversion of the yield curve. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we continue to ponder CPI, we'll observe that on an ex-humor, personality, and insight basis, Macro Horizons is right on target. 
Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.